Welcome to Open Book Unbound. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How you doing? Can't believe that's us in week eight. Well, I can believe it when you think about how long we've been locked in our houses. Well, I um, yesterday finished my lockdown scarf I've been knitting for... Perfect uh, for my summer. <laughs> exactly. Ideal for the temperatures that we're due to have today. But I decided I needed to do something that would keep me off my phone, keep me stop checking the news every two minutes, and decided to pick up something that would keep my hands busy. So I've been knitting an orange, yellow and red stripy scarf for my daughter. I finished it yesterday. She's delighted with it. I would just say don't look too closely. There's <laughs> definitely room for improvement. Are there any holes? <laughs> uh, there might be one or two air vents. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to uh, aspire to improve, I think. So she's commissioned me. She's a hockey goalkeeper um, and they wear helmets, but her ears always get really cold in the winter when she's playing hockey with the plastic helmet. So she obviously has such confidence in my knitting abilities that she's commissioned me to do an ear warmer for her next that will go around her ears and her hockey goalkeeping helmet will fit on top. So I shall keep you updated as to progress. Don't expect updates very frequently because I think it might be a slow burn project this one. Great well maybe we should post pictures in our newsletter so people can see yeah your, your handiwork. So this week we have um, a terrific story by Helen Stedwick. We're really grateful to her for sending us the story for you so thank you Helen um, called Gunter and then we're going to finish up with a poem by Jane Kenyon an American poet. Will I get us started Claire? Yeah you do that. Okay, Gunter. He always sits at the head of the table. He sees everyone and notices them. He smokes neat little roll-ups made with black rislas and free trade imported tobacco. He's a tiny man, smaller than me. At five foot two, I see the thinning hair on the top of his head and feel weighty and clumsy and also fond. Everyone knows he's something of a genius. When things are slow or stalled, ideas scarce, cells misbehaving in their culture or dying in their isolation chambers, the suggestion is always the same. We could ask Gunter. I used to have weekly meetings with him to show him my latest designs for the microfluidic chambers and get his ideas on which carcinoma cells to use. These days, I try to stop myself relying on him too heavily. I spend more time on the biochemistry always my weakest subject, aware that I should be better than I am, less dependent. Gunter tells me that he will not give up his roll-ups. He says he has two a day and that they are a pleasure. He's European like that. We meet outside to smoke and I take out my extra light, white as fume hood cigarette with a perforated filter. I started smoking a lot more than two a day. I'm not sure if I'd call it a pleasure. We talk about things other than our own research. We talk about holograms and galaxies and the 10,000 people working on the Large Hadron Collider. We talk about jazz and London and blue cheese and once the X Factor. Gunter is interested in every subject I can think of and he knows more about all of them than I do. If I were him, I think I would have stopped coming into work by now. I wish he would rest. Shall we stop there? Yeah, let's. What do we make of Gunter? He's quite a fascinating wee man, isn't he? <laughs> no. I feel like I've been dangled just enough to know a little bit about him, but 
I definitely want to know more. I, he strikes me as something sort of really happy and well-contained. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but the idea that kind of, of someone who has their two cigarettes a day and that's a pleasure and seems to know lots about things strikes me as someone who's sort of curious and kind of settled in the world. I don't know. Maybe that's how I want to see him. Everyone knows he's something of a genius, though. Sometimes you think it's difficult to fit the being something of a genius with his self-contentment. Because I picked up on that too. I thought it, it doesn't seem to take much to call him happy. Who is the speaker here? And who, or who is the voice? And I don't know about you, but you know, when I was a young lawyer in New York, there were a couple of Gunters for me. You know, there were people who, even though maybe my question wasn't their subject, they always had time for me. I could go to them and there were, you know, partners in the law firm who would always listen and always give really good advice or seem to know much more than the things that they were supposed to know. And I remember really being grateful to them for always having time for questions, no matter how stupid they were. But, you know, now looking at it as a much older person, I think those people were human too. You know, they weren't, they didn't have all the answers. They were just being incredibly generous. So what it makes me think about in this story is who's the speaker here? And is Gunter really this character? Is it just the way she sees him? It felt to me that it was a she speaking but I don't know if that's just because we know the author is Helen. There was something vulnerable, I felt, about the person speaking, that they felt they needed to ask Gunter. Maybe it's the smoking culture, which I've not been a part of. I've not been a smoker, but I just don't know that in my head it's another man going out to smoke with him a couple of times a day. I can picture two men standing outside twice a day smoking, but I can't necessarily picture a woman and a man, and I don't know whether that's just a kind of gendered misconception it probably is and that somehow a power imbalance might be different between a man and a woman a young woman in a lab and a man who's older and recognizes a genius than then seems to exist in this story but again i think that could be my own kind of that ages me or dates me in terms of the way i think about the relationships between men and women i wondered as well if the, he's a tiny man smaller than me as well led me a little bit to wonder if it was a woman speaking because, again, normally preconceptions, you would anticipate a man being taller than a woman. I don't know. And maybe that word fond, actually, kind of, it's not, it's not a word that you would necessarily associate with expression that a man might make or might admit to anyway. But again, I think so much of my, what's interesting is so much of my response to the stories probably has to do with my age and my own experiences of male and female relationships in a workplace. And did you read that fond as him fond of the speaker? Or the speaker fond of him? Because I had to go back to that little bit and reread it. I think it, for me, it's a speaker feeling fond of Gunter. So the speaker's feeling weighty and clumsy, but also fond. So the, the size of Gunter makes, in my head, him feel like he's a big man and clumsy. But you're right, maybe the idea of feeling weighty and clumsy strikes me as much more of a way that a woman might articulate how they feel than a man particularly a man who's bigger than another man. I can't imagine them thinking, well, that makes me feel weighty and clumsy. But as a woman dealing with a, a genius, smaller man, I might feel weighty and clumsy, actually, now that you mention it. Because that imbalance is there in a way that wouldn't necessarily feel like an imbalance if it was another woman or... So you're talking me into it. But I, I wonder why the speaker was trying to stop herself relying on him too heavily. Yeah, I think in a workplace scenario there's often a lot of pressure isn't there to develop there's all this personal development and continuing professional development and the sense that you should be moving forward in your career and I wonder if that sort of idea is what's feeding into that idea of needing to stop relying on him too heavily you should be able to do it yourself or you should be moving towards being able to do it yourself 
It's so funny for two ex-lawyers to try and figure out what the relationships and the kind of office politics in a lab might be. But I agree. Yeah, I think, I think for example, in law, if you're trying to work towards partnership, at the later stages, you need to show a lot of independence. It wouldn't be looked upon well if you're continually going to others for advice. Whereas, ironically, I think as a young partner, asking the advice of senior partners is looked upon well, or at least that's how I remember it. But also, I suppose as a person, you would eventually think I either have to be able to do this myself or not do it. I think as well there's a sense of if you do it yourself and it goes well you get the benefit of that and applaud it but if it goes badly you have to shoulder the whole responsibility for that yourself and you know I think that's maybe in a scientific background why you know you would want to rely on someone else. I mean we're forever checking things off against each other and even though nine times out of ten the other one of us will agree with what the first one has suggested we we would still say do you think this is the right approach or should we do it this way or what about this idea? Tell me what you thought about the description of her cigarette my extra light white as a fume hood cigarette with a perforated filter. Yeah, no, I'm definitely with you. The idea of an extra white, extra light cigarette on a perforated filter has got to be a woman, right? But then to me, that is just an ordinary cigarette. To me, I read that and I was thinking, oh, what's white as a fume? What's a perforated filter? And then when I sort of tried to sort of analyze what that was, is that not just a white cigarette with a filter on the end? It's funny because so as a non-smoker, I'm sort of translating this into my own personal addiction, which is obviously coffee. So I kind of get that idea that for some people it's like a treat and for other people it's just, you know, it's getting to the, from the point of you getting out of bed in the morning to getting um, to the end of the day. So I kind of, you know, I have to translate that into something that I understand. Shall we keep reading and see what um, what comes next? Sure. Shall I read on? Every cell is different. That's fundamental. Until recently, research was carried out on millions of cells at the same time. Any result was an average result. Details were smoothed out or lost, and inhomogeneous responses were neglected. So instead, we're trying to isolate arrays of single cells. We can see how each one behaves individually. We can see if some are more aggressive than others. They are. And if some respond to drugs differently to others, they do. We are trying to determine if individual cells can be targeted to achieve a population-level response. I find myself lingering behind after our meetings, wondering if I should do something or say something but I can't think of what that would be. I hesitate by the door and look back at him, trying to find some optimism to offer. Have you heard? He says to me one day. And I think, heard about the fire that destroyed that lab in Southampton? Heard about my fellowship application? Heard how long he has? I shake my head. They found the Higgs, he says, as if that proves it's all worthwhile. Maybe, I say, too aware of the uncertainties, and close the door quietly behind me. When I get my device to work, which take months, and my cells to survive, and my microfluidics steady, and I finally get a result that is interesting, which takes over a year, I decide to show it to Gunther. I walk into his room and thank him for seeing me then say sorry for disturbing him at a time like this. He smiles and tells me not to apologise. 
It is a pleasure. I find myself babbling on, not about my result so much as about the lack of other results. I tell him that it is too hard, too much, that there are too many variables. I tell him that my contribution is too small to be significant. Gunter smiles. He says we're nearly there, that the ending is in sight. When he says we, he means all scientists, not just him and me. He's working on a paper himself, and in it he will write, Our science is interdisciplinary. It must be. Combining our knowledge is how our field will progress. We will cure cancer. It is only a matter of time. Six months later, Gunter's paper will be published. I will print it out as soon as it's available and put it in a transparent plastic folder. Sometimes I'll take it out and reread those lines because it seems to me that the things worth writing are worth reading over and over again. Then I'll smile and put it safely back in the folder and put the folder back on the shelf and I'll return to the lab and keep working. Has your view of Gunter changed? He seems a little bit more devious to me. I wonder if he is putting her results in his paper. What makes you think that? Just the way that she goes to give him the result and he smiles and his paper is published and she prints it out. Just something about it that made me think, hmm, should she have been credited on that? Is she keeping it because it's of value to her because of the work that she's put in? So you think that the paper that she's printed out, she did some of the work for and that's why she keeps taking it out and looking at it. I remember the first poem I got published. My kids remember the whoop of joy that I made in the supermarket when I got the email saying I was having a poem published. And then I remember just being the joy of being able to pull something off the shelf and find my name in it, the work itself, that something I had written was worth that. It's that feeling of looking at something that she had a part in. I hadn't, I, that's not how I read it at all. But I, I recognize what you're saying, that idea that I keep going back to the thing because I can't believe it's something I did, which if you're right, and we can talk about that because I, I disagree, but if you're right, that goes to her kind of having a lack of confidence, which we definitely saw earlier, and therefore not necessarily feeling sorry that her name's not in it, but just delighted that she's contributed to something that's been published. So how did you read it then? Well, I read it that he was ill and that he wasn't going to make it, and that by the time the paper's published, he's not around. So her going back to the paper is going back to him, basically. And that line of our science is interdisciplinary, and it's only a matter of time, and we all need each other, was kind of admonition to her to keep going. There's a line in there saying, how long, heard how long he has. That's a bit of language that you would only ever use if someone's dying, right? It wouldn't say, how long have you got? If I didn't think you weren't going to be around. I read that as just three possible answers to the question, have you heard? Yeah, but all of them are three things that are in existence. So Yeah, that's true. A fire, a fellowship application, and how long he has. They aren't alternatives. It's not like, have you heard that it might rain today? I think they're all three things that exist. And she's just wondering which one he's referring to. In that, I assume that he's ill and dying. And then this whole thing of 
you know, we will cure cancer. I'm assuming he's died of cancer. And then when she takes the paper down, she's effectively, you know, touching that strength, if it were, both remembering his words, but also, you know, in the way that you want to connect with something that was there and gave you great strength and can't if the person isn't around anymore. And I guess the rereading over and over again is consistent with that because if he was still around in the lab, she could run it by him or chat to him about the contents of the paper rather than having just to reread it. Yeah, and the idea that she'll smile and put it back safely in the folder and the folder back on the shelf, and it's an admonition for me for her to keep working, isn't that she's, well, certainly that she's angry that she, that she wasn't included in the credits or you know, in the publication, but more that she's almost like the way you would go back to a photo of a loved one to kind of give you strength to keep going or someone that's been inspirational to you. And it seems like going back to that, those three alternatives, it seems like he doesn't really want to engage in any of the alternatives because she just says, maybe I say, and then closes the door quietly behind her, which makes me think she also doesn't want to engage with that possibility that he's not going to be there. You know, having thought that that might be one of the three things he's mentioning, she's he doesn't want to go down that road in terms of the conversation. And then uh, that next paragraph feels like it's a kind of flash forward when I finally get my stuff to work. And, it, you know, that's a year later. And then when she says she's sorry for disturbing him at a time like this, she's never sorry to disturb him before in the middle of his work. So it makes me think that he's really at the end of his life. You're convincing me. I hadn't read it that way at all. And he smiles and tells me not to apologize, that it's a pleasure. And then she's babbling on. That feels like it's an interaction that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been unwell because she was obviously interrupting him every day, twice a day, having a cigarette and having lots of chats. And so that kind of slightly uncomfortable exchange, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, it's okay, strikes me as something that's the awkwardness in the room is the elephant in the room, which is that he's dying. And they're not talking about that. And she doesn't want to interrupt his sort of the end of his life's work. But yet, yeah, does she? Does he mind kind of thing? And she really talks herself down, doesn't she? Yeah. That line about too small to be significant helps me with your theory, which is that he's used her information and published it. But actually, I think for me, in my head, the characters are engaged in something else. So it's really about something else. Both could be true. I know what I love about these stories and what I really love about the way that we tackle work in open book, and this is why we do it, is because lots of different possibilities are true and can be true. We try not to have the author in the room unless it's a kind of reading because we get to decide, you know, or we get to decide not to agree, which is a real joy. So we swap to the poem? Yeah, let's. This poem's called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. Feels like a contrast to the story. Yeah, definitely. I think I was thinking when I read this poem last night that it feels like mindfulness before it's time. You know, she keeps checking back in to remind herself to be present to the joys of 
her day, whether that's the peaches on her cereal or the silver candlesticks or the being able to take the dog for a walk, you know, even for us or for me, even now, you know, I'm engaged in work that I love and I, I do have many small joys through the day and I'm, I'm not always very conscious of them, you know, in a way that I maybe should be. It's a real count your blessings poem, this one, isn't it? Mm. Which I think was mindfulness before it was called mindfulness. Yeah, that's was, what our grannies would have called it, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of taking stock and being grateful. And I know that now that there is a real movement in keeping a gratefulness diary and I've seen ideas of writing things down that have happened in a day and putting them in a jar and then when you're having not such a good day, opening the jar and reminding yourself of the things in it. But for me, you know, it does really remind me of my granny saying, oh, count your blessings. Your talk of jars makes me think of I have a cousin in Ohio who has this terrific um, habit or, you know, sort of custom, which I really should adopt. And maybe I will as of today. Whereas any time something really nice happens, they write that memory down on a piece of paper and stick it in the jar. And then on New Year's Eve, at the turn of midnight, they open the jar and read them all aloud. And it's just a kind of way of remembering the highlights of the year, which I think is so nice. That's just giving me goosebumps. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? Back, It's a really lovely way to look back at your year. This poem feels like it's the opposite of that, actually. It's not about the highlights. It's about acknowledging when you're out of bed that you have two strong legs, rather than thinking, what's the great thing that I'm looking forward to? So it feels like it's the inverse of that in many ways. Um, and I think it's quite a useful poem because, as you say, we don't, we're all kind of stuck. We can choose to be frustrated about that, which we are, I am for sure, a lot of the time. Or we can acknowledge the things that we're still able to do that are the kind Joys. And there's a real sense of contentment in this poem, an unhurriedness. There's not a sense of wishing for the time to pass, even though she's out for a walk or, you know, she's having dinner. It's, there's no sort of rattling on to the next thing about it, which I have to say that I'm quite guilty of. Come on, finish up your dinner. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. There's a real being in the present. So what's interesting for me as a kind of poetry geek is the reason she's successful here in that sort of sentiment is because of the use of the word otherwise. It's only sort of that joy of the moment because it's making reference to how it otherwise could be. Poets like Wendell Berry, and I'm trying to think of others, it, describing the kind of joy of the moment and what they can see are doing a really different thing than she's doing, which is to describe that in reference to the other, the alternative. So, you know, the other words otherwise, and that's that line, it might have been otherwise, come over and over again. And so I think in some ways, it's about identifying the joy in the moment in reference to what could have been, what could be. And for me as a non-poetry geek, I get the sense, I might not identify how it is that that is created. But for me, the word otherwise creates space in the poem that lengthens the poem because it makes me envisage what otherwise is, what the alternative would be. So you read, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And automatically I'm thinking back to the summer where I was on crutches because I'd had knee surgery and it was otherwise. And all that experience and time flashes through my head before I then go on to read the next line of the poem. You're absolutely right. And I think it's a bit of the kind of magic that we were just talking about with Helen's story, that there are enough gaps for you 
as a reader, and I think poetry does this particularly well, or when it's done well, there are enough gaps for you as a reader to fill in your own bits, you know? So it's exactly what you're saying. I think when we read the otherwise, we already imagine what the otherwise is. As a listener, you won't be able to see what the poem looks like. It's a long, thin poem, and I was thinking it's almost like the otherwise is sitting in the empty space on the page on the right. Like there's a kind of column, a kind of alternative poem, which is the otherwise. That, as you say, Claire, your brain will fill in what the otherwise would have been. And rather than telling us what the otherwise could be, by just giving us the otherwise alternative. It draws your reader in. It makes the poem your own because each of us will have a different otherwise to fill in if that makes sense. The poem works because of that sentence otherwise and the repetition of it over and over again, asking you as a listener or as a reader to fill it in rather than just, I got out of bed, I had cereal, I, you know, and, and that poem would have been a beautiful poem too, but that would have been kind of implicit and some readers wouldn't have engaged with it in the same way. So I think it's, I think that's the magic in it. The other thing I wanted to point out too is that the repetition of the word day at the end, when she's in bed and she says she planned another day just like this day. I love that kind of piling on of the word day. There's three days in there, today, another day, and then one day. At the end, it kind of speeds the whole thing up by asking us to think about today, tomorrow, and the future, if that makes sense. And I think what I love about it is just what you said as well, like my experience of what otherwise is different from every other reader's experience of what otherwise might mean or might be. And the joy of coming together in a group to talk about it is that we get to share our otherwises and we get to see it from different perspectives and appreciate other people's points of view in a way that reading it in isolation on your own, you only have that one experience of what otherwise might be. And it just makes for a much more interesting conversation, I think. Or, you know, and, and flipping that, you could have a conversation about what are the moments. What are, you know, she probably has, what, five moments in this that she talks about, or three, four, maybe even six of the kind of good moments. And then you could ask everyone to think about their sort of six good moments. So rather than thinking about the negative, you can think about the positive. That's the one thing about the poem that I, it's not that I don't like it, but I feel it draws you to the negative. Even though on first reading you think, oh, it's such a positive poem, it draws you to think about what your otherwise would be rather than your moments of sitting at the table with the candlesticks or getting to sleep in a bed in a room with paintings in it or whatever your highlights are of the day. Shall we swap over to chatting a little bit about our feedback this week? Again, thanks very much to everyone who dropped us a line or sent us an email or a text and let us know how they're getting on. One of our open shared reading groups this week was a very countrywide affair. We had someone zooming in from Dundee, Edinburgh, Aberdeen and from Orkney all reading together in the group. And that group included some people completely new to open book rather than people who, who regularly zoom into our groups. It's been one of the really nice things about the online groups, isn't it, that we can bring people from really Really geographically diverse places into the same space and that's not something that we foresaw or knew that we could do so that's been a real joy. A uh, shout out to our Brora group this week who apparently were roaring with laughter when they read Edwin Morgan's at 80 and discovered that one of the people in their group is 82 and they had assumed that that, that person was in her 60s so <laughs> good on her for admitting it too. I wonder what her at 80 poem looked like she'd be looking back. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm glad they were roaring with laughter. <laughs> I know. Uh, no. 
Yeah. And our uh, Open Door Cafe group have been meeting, first of all, by email, exchanging ideas about things they're reading together. Then they moved on to Zoom, but they were using a very short Zoom session, which meant that they weren't reading aloud together. And this week, they've moved back to uh, reading aloud. It was great to hear that they had been missing the reading aloud bit of their session so much that they'd found a way to bring it back. Uh, and they reported that it all went very smoothly and the technology worked really well for them. So that was great to hear. Oh, that's really nice to hear. You know, we're, we're practically religious about the idea that we need to read aloud together, which always seems a strange way to start. But actually, once people get into it, it's lovely to hear that they've missed it if they haven't had it. I loved hearing that we had a mum and daughter getting in touch to say that they had joined a group together and they've been in lockdown together for eight weeks. So it was just nice to have something else to chat about. So please feel free to join our online groups if you're getting bored of the people that are around you and just want something else to talk about over dinner. And this week, our newsletter has been read in the USA, Austria, France and in China. And I was very disappointed to see that Australia was not featuring this week. And I'll need to get in touch with my sister because she is normally the one that reads the newsletter in Australia and sends it out to her friends to read out there. And she's obviously been slacking on her duties this week. You sound like a big sister to me. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, we have big news to announce this week, which is that Jan Carson, our lovely writer in lockdown, who is the author of all the postcard stories, Um, has agreed to send three of the postcards to our lead readers who love her work. And we're just going to announce who those three are. And that those three are Sue McDermott, Leslie McNiven and Anne Hay. Huge thanks to them and all of our lead readers for your amazing work. We really absolutely couldn't do it without any of you. So thank you very much. And also huge thanks to Jan for being willing to send three of the postcard stories to, to our folks. And I'd like to add into that a little shout out as well to Miriam, who does so much amazing work for Open Book. She organised the competition and got all the names in from the lead readers who wanted to enter and put them on pieces of paper and drew them, physically drew them out of an actual hat and has photos to prove it. So we shall include some of those pictures in the newsletter. We wanted to report too that last week we had 14 groups meeting back up online. That's six public groups and the rest of them are groups that normally meet in person and included uh, bringing our public group at Stills Gallery back online. That's a really great group run by Sam Tong who look at some artwork from Stills and read around it and write about that. So if you're interested in that, please look out for the Stills group. That happens once a month. If you'd like to book onto one of our public groups, you can do so by going to our website at openbookreading.com and there you'll find the links to join one of the groups. You just click on book a place and you'll receive an email confirming your booking. If you scroll to additional information, you'll find the Zoom link. And when it comes to the time and day of the meeting, you just click on that Zoom link and it'll take you straight in. I think that's all from us at the Open Book Podcast. Thanks for having us in your ears this week and we look forward to chatting again soon. 